All right, people, I'm going to make this quick, but for the next six weeks or so, starting February 1st, I'm putting all my show outlines up for auction. I've mentioned before that I have a very strict routine for preparing for and recording THC episodes, and part of that process, 95% of the time going back many years, has been waking up early on the days I record and compiling my notes into a roughly four to six page outline that I print out and conduct the interviews from as a template. I write in the margins, I cross stuff out as we go along, I jot things down I don't want to forget, and I usually have a good deal of material in these outlines that never even makes it to air. When a show is done, I put a little staple up in the corner and throw them in a filing cabinet. Well, it's no secret I'm trying to move, and what better time to try to collect a little extra cash and offload a box of stuff I've been storing that I don't need. So I'm signing, listing, and auctioning off all the outlines I have to any listeners who might be interested in that kind of thing. Each one is totally unique with its own markings, coffee stains, beer spills, printing imperfections, typos, and maybe even doodles in some cases that were never really supposed to be seen by anyone else, but I guess that's no big deal. I know I've personally bought signed scripts before, and some of my most prized possessions are band set lists I nabbed at the end of concerts. So maybe this is something like that for podcasts? If you're into it, they will be listed at ebay.com. Yeah, I know. ebay.com slash USR slash chats. The link is at the top of the show notes as well, but it's ebay.com slash USR slash chats. And of course, I'll post the links across all the social media dystopias I have an unfortunate presence in. Again, the first batch of outlines will go up February 1st and be listed for 10 days. And I'm going to continue to put up new batches as time permits, when and where I can. And I hope to have the whole thing completed in about six to eight weeks or so. I guess I'm just out when I'm out, but if there's a specific one you might want, keep dipping in to see what's been added. There's a good chance I haven't gotten it listed yet, and a real chance I don't even have it for one reason or another. But I do have most, so just keep an eye out. Thanks in advance to anyone who picks up a little piece of THC history and contributes to the Carlwood Family Moving Fund. Alright, and that said, in more ways than one, let's get this show on the road. Enjoy. Praise be to he, Hireside Chatters, setting sail once again on the vast conspiracy from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and we are in choppy waters, no doubt. It feels like the nefarious few are in a full court press of life-altering agendas, psychopathic plans, and digital technocratic takeovers, while most people remain blissfully unaware. Yet the public-private partnership puppeteers are still inking deals, the misinformation police are marching on. The fact-checker mafia is making sure no unsavory thoughts penetrate the soft skulls of the sheeple, 
and the digital infrastructure for the global community network is primed to box out all of us undesirables. That's right, folks. Get ready for internet everything all at once, lab-made food, and a revolving door of lab-made pathogens as the masses wonder why the rest of us have such an issue living our lives in small, pimped-out smart pods safe from the unpredictable open air and dangerous nature where we can just tune in for MILF Manor and cash out some carbon credits for cricket powder brick cakes. It is not a pretty picture, but that is why we sound the alarm while we still can. And one of the best alarm sounders on these issues is independent journalist, commentator, and violinist Helen Vyniski, a.k.a. Helen of Destroy. She has been going for the proverbial jugular in her work and highlighting many things the rest seem to be missing. You can find her on Substack and BitChute under the Helen of Destroy moniker and on Twitter and Telegram under the creative handle VelociRapture23. In April of 2020, she gained some notoriety with a prophetic essay for Cynthia McKinney's book, When China Sneezes, from the coronavirus lockdown to the global politico-economic crisis entitled The Post-COVID-19 World, A Permanent Dystopia? And she also occasionally writes for RT as well. I can't wait. It's an honor and a pleasure. The prophetic, plan-exposing journalist, raw, truth-telling tweeter, and the hold-nothing-back basher of the controller class, Helen of Destroy, welcome to the higher side. Good to be here. Thanks. Of course, this is going to be great. Thank you for doing it. I really enjoy your writing, not just the content, but also the style. You hit a vibe that's actually really hard to hit, and I salute you for it. And I have a big outline here with lots of quotes and details on all the threads you've covered, but I thought it would be interesting to just kick this off by asking you as a journalist who's looking at all kinds of stuff. What is your diagnosis for the state of our world, and what do you consider some of the biggest, most important problems we face? Well, I mean, my diagnosis for the state of the world, as you can probably tell by reading anything I write, is that things are looking pretty grim. Um, <laughs> I mean, people have allowed themselves to be passively led by the nose through convenience, through shiny things, through following the path of least resistance into this sort of control sequence where we're slowly divorced piece by piece from our humanity. And as we become these more synthetic organisms, then the technology moves in and sort of encourages that. So it becomes like a feedback loop. And we're so different than an actual human being at this point that it's it's very difficult for us to even interact with one another or for, for a person who's wholly bought into the system to speak coherently with a person who's outside of the system. And of course, the ruling class encourages this with this divide and conquer and everything. But one of the things that I'm working on now is this chatbot GPT that everybody is raving about. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're talking it up like mad at the World Economic Forum. And it's this is something that I've been warning about for years is that I forget which Google executive it was, but one of them made a big point of saying that Google's returning more than one search result was not a feature, but a bug. Like it's only supposed to return one search result. It's supposed to know which one you want and it's supposed to give you it. Or rather, it's supposed to know which one the system wants and give you that. And you're supposed to not think that there can be anything else. I mean, the idea is not for, you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but they want you to say it equals 5. No, you're supposed to say that 2 plus 2 equals 5, and how could it ever possibly equal anything else? That that's a ludicrous idea. What a conspiracy theory. And why would you ever think that? But this chatbot thing is apparently programmed to exclude certain political narratives and exclude certain possibilities from the universe of like what can be in reality. And it's been, of course, raised on a diet of Wikipedia entries and people familiar with my work might know that I've dissected the 
inner workings of Wikipedia pretty extensively, and it's a very scary place in there. I think the big tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter get a lot of the attention, but Wikipedia is a very powerful player in the control matrix. But this chatbot thing is where things are going in terms of the synthetic thought police that is going on. And one of my recent pieces is talking about how there's just this cross-disciplinary inculcation of this, this, this control matrix that eventually they want us to internalize it so they don't have to censor us because we have this internal sensor that just stops us from our thoughts wandering in a certain direction because we're worried that oh, we might be committing a crime or we might be just, you know, doing something that's wrong for a society. And basically, the, I mean, I'm kind of all over the place here, but I see things going in a very bad direction. As Actually, that chapter that I wrote for Cynthia's book, A Permanent Dystopia Question Mark, the editor put that question mark in there. I, I, I didn't put a question mark in there. It seemed pretty clear at the time where we were headed. And pretty much everything I predicted in that chapter has come to pass. I think a lot of us who do this kind of work are experiencing this sort of like, I told you so fatigue. Yeah, We warn about these things and these things happen and they happen exactly as we predicted. Maybe not in the exact time frame or in the exact order, but they happen. And it would be really nice if we could just get humanity's attention and make people realize that this is not a drill. This is not a joke. This is not some sort of like hypothetical theorizing or, or even like the people who throw shade on quote unquote conspiracy theories accuse the people who traffic in them of this helps them sleep better at night. They want to see the world in a more comforting way. I don't see how it's comforting to uh, <laughs> believe that or to know rather that there is are these powerful people who happen to not want what's best for humanity and would like to turn us into a slave species and are very far along the lines doing that. But um, yeah, the whole fact checker industrial complex is sort of speeding the process of that transformation into the slave species. There are people who, I don't know if they're bots or if they're real human beings on like Twitter or whatever, that you present them with an argument and they say, oh, that's been debunked. And you say, no, no, it hasn't. And they point to the fact check and you read the fact check and the fact check doesn't say anything that disproves the thing. It just says that this has been debunked. And they just refuse to like engage with the information on, the, on its basic level. It's I've referred to it as the iron curtain of information. And it's just like the way that this is completely blotting out reality from many people's daily existence is very scary. And it's something that has to be stopped if we have any hope of, I don't know, regaining our agency as uh, people. <laughs> yes. Well said. What a triple axle swan dive right into the deep end of the pool. And you hit on several things that I was going to ask you about, chat GPT being one of them. This is a couple of your tweets mashed together that I copied down, but you say, it is a quirk of the parasite's psychosis that they obsess over their host appearing to consent to the asset stripping and ruination of their society. Thus, there can be no show of dissent, no memory that dissent was ever a thing. Google shall give one search result. And uh, you go on to say that the 2.0 version of this is basically chat GTP that a World Economic Forum panel hinted at how censorship would be achieved through hate speech, laws, re-education of the public, source control, upload filters, and AI. Chat GPT was specifically mentioned, and you go on to show examples of Chat GPT's bias, pretty much just like Google or Wikipedia. But I suppose maybe the conversational style is probably more convincing to the reader. I'm not so sure, but there's probably a psychology to it that 
makes it easier to really craft the nuances around what they want people to digest. Is that what you would say? Yeah, I mean, there have been these studies done that suggest that humans actually trust computer programs more than they trust, say, a stranger. And I find that extremely disturbing because computer programs are programmed by human beings. So like that in and of itself is like a duh moment. But the idea that that we trust these machines more than we trust each other speaks to how much the ruling class has a violated our trust in. They're always lamenting that we don't trust institutions. And it's like, well, whose fault is that really? But in terms of what would chat GPT, yeah, because if you're having a conversation with this thing and Wikipedia already does this, but it has this authority of like this idea of neutrality. So this chatbot is supposed to be like this all seeing, all knowing thing. So if you're having a conversation with it and it's giving you the answers, it's the Oracle. It's the Oracle of Delphi. Yeah. So you're supposed to believe what it says and not question that because how could they program an AI to give you the wrong answer? That, that would be so strange. <laughs> two plus two could never be before. Right, right. And let's back it up to throw some shade at Wikipedia. I think I first heard you on my buddy Charlie Robinson's podcast talking about Wikipedia, and I perked up a bit because Wikipedia is a huge issue. It's pushed all the other old pedias out of the circle and sort of claimed this space as the one true source of everything, claiming to be crowdsourced, but it's really more spook sourced. And I think I heard you say you're actually working on a Wikipedia book, which I'm sure will be great. But talk to us about the seriousness of this and the perception versus reality when it comes to Wikipedia and its central role in the whole information control apparatus. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, I was working on a book before the coronavirus hit. And so the book is a little bit out of date, but I will work on it again at some point. But yeah, Wikipedia, unfortunately, it's a service as sort of a feeder for all of the other fact checkers or social media platforms. They check their facts or Google will get its, when it ranks its search results, it'll rank them based on their reputation from Wikipedia. Like Google search rankers are actually told if they're not familiar with a certain site to look it up on Wikipedia and find out what the general consensus is of how reputable it is. So it's like sort of behind the scenes with all of these other fact checking apparatus. And people do ascribe it this neutrality that it certainly doesn't deserve. And even Wikipedia itself, which is something that a lot of people don't know, it doesn't claim to be the truth. They even say that we cannot aspire to like being the one true anything, but we aspire to, quote unquote, verifiability. And verifiability just means that, quote unquote, reliable sources say it's true. So, I mean, reliable sources, as you probably know, is was the name of Brian Stelter's CNN show before he was unceremoniously dumped by the side of the road. I mean, there's a reason why that show had that name is because they want us like kind of subliminally wedge it in there that, oh, reliable sources. Well, this is a tautology. CNN must be a reliable source because it's called reliable sources. Why would they <laughs> lie to me? But um, the reliable source is what Wikipedia editors say is a reliable source. And Wikipedia editors, if you've ever had any interaction with them, are not exactly the salt of the earth types. They try to say that anyone can edit Wikipedia. Well, that's obviously not the case. If you've ever tried to edit any sort of sensitive article, I mean, the way that I even got into looking into Wikipedia was I was working for a guy who had been completely slandered on his Wikipedia entry. He couldn't get it deleted. He couldn't get it changed. He had called in professional editors and they couldn't do anything. And the Wikipedia entry was really, still is. I mean, it, there has been no no progress on that front. And so I started digging into it and realized that, I forget the peak number, but it's declined by over 77% over the last, say, seven years from the peak number of editors. And 
at this point, it's like 1% of editors make the vast majority of the edits. Wish I had the statistics in front of me. I don't, but I have written about a million articles about it, which can be found on my other substack, velocirapture.substack.com. But yeah, it's a very gated community. And if you run afoul of any of the people who are in charge, you are immediately banned. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Even if you're a respected editor, like there was one one of my sources in the Wikipedia editor community was basically banned for a better part of a year for calling out somebody who had come back under a different name, who had been banned for shenanigans, like promoted undeclared paid editing and advocacy and stuff like that. And he had come back and he was doing the paid editing stuff again, except this time he was working for basically the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton campaign. This was back in 2016. And so this guy calls him out on it. And instead of the obvious, he's got reams and reams of proof, like pages and pages of proof that this guy is not on the up and up. And then he gets banned because everybody on the Wikipedia editor community is on this other guy's side. So this idea that it's a democratic platform where, and the co-founder has spoken about this, uh, Larry Sanger, who was almost written out of history himself because Jimmy Wales, the other co-founder, decided he wanted to be the only founder. So he would go into his uh, Wikipedia entry and remove the co part and just be founder. (laughs) It's like, okay, so you're editing your own history and you want us to believe that this is a free and open encyclopedia. But yeah, basically, Wikipedia is also, in addition to being the source of quote unquote facts for these fact checking and social media platforms, it's also used as the source for AI. So like in addition to feeding chat GPT, if you have an Alexa device, if you're one of these morons that has this thing in there in your home, if you ask it a question, chances are it's going to spit back a Wikipedia entry at you. And a lot of times it's not even these Wikipedia entries, which have to be, if you have a fact in a Wikipedia entry, it has to be sourced to a quote unquote reliable source. Well, there's this thing called Wikidata, which is even less reliable in that you can put a factoid in there and it doesn't necessarily have to be sourced. It was discovered um, a few years ago that actually the vast majority were not sourced. And they only noticed this because somebody had put some wildly libelous thing in there about, I think it was, was it uh, Millennia Trump? I think it was Millennia Trump. But um, they put in something about her that was like really not true, but like very salacious. And they happened to notice that, oh, wait, actually, none of this stuff is sourced. And uh, we're using it to power all of these devices. Well, that, that's a great idea. Of course, nothing was done about it, because why would you do anything about it? The amount of money that goes into Wikipedia is also off the charts. Like if you've ever used it, you see they have these like money grubbing banners at the top all the time. Yeah, if everybody yeah. just gave a dollar, this would go away. Well, I mean, the hundreds of billions of dollars and millions, million, not, not billions, sorry. I'm thinking of the military industrial complex, not the uh, <laughs> Wikipedia industrial complex. Hundreds of millions of dollars are going into this thing. And if you just look at it, it's a pretty bare bones site. Like, while they have been growing their staff significantly, they don't have enough staff to justify $100 million. So it's, uh, and I, I think it's gone up since then. That was a couple of years ago. But you've got all these foundations, like the usual suspects, the Amidyar Network, the Soros Open Society all of these, like Newmark Foundation, Hewlett Foundation, all of these narrative managers, what I call them, are all contributing excessively to Wikipedia. And so you have to wonder, okay, well, what do they get in return for these contributions? Because it's not like the site needs all this money to run. So if you look into some of Jimmy Wales' connections, I mean, the guy, after meeting Bono, of all people, in like 2006, suddenly he's being squired around Davos and is hanging out with all these fancy people and marries the diary secretary of Tony Blair. Mm. And um, I mean, of course, Tony Blair was right there at the WEF last week talking up how we all need a digital ID because otherwise, how will we know what vaccinations we've got? Well, gee, uh, 
not like that's any of your business, weird looking dude. Hmm. We talk about being able to judge book by its cover. That's you know fair. So basically, Wikipedia is sort of looming in the background in a lot of very sinister things, and it's hooked in. It's uh, Israeli intelligence has a very central role in it. They learned early on back in 2008, I think was the first time they were caught secretly editing Wikipedia, and it's been downhill ever since then. And if you any anything. Go on Wikipedia, look at anything about the Israel-Palestine situation. You're going to find the most laughably biased thing on the planet. It's obscene, but they get away with it because, you know, who's going to tell them no? (laughs) Yes, that's a great summary. And I'm glad you pointed out that nonprofit aspect. You go there, they got the banner. We just need your money. Yet they are making hundreds of millions from billionaire, quote unquote, philanthropists and narrative controllers and corporations all getting their perspectives out to the people. And in my notes here from that conversation you had with Charlie, you mentioned that in the integrity initiative scandal from a few years ago, Wikipedia was included. I wasn't sure really what that scandal entailed. And you also mentioned that the Israeli military has rows and columns of people editing Wikipedia like uh you know, a human bot farm kind of thing. Yeah. Do we know that for sure? And and where where yeah, do we know that from? And what can you say about the integrity initiative scandal? So the thing with, with the Israelis in rows and columns, they brag about it, that there is some program that was on Israeli TV back in like 2012. The name is escaping me right now, but it's the guy, Natalie Bennett was in charge of this thing. And now he's, of course, in the government now, but he was just a lowly runner of an education program that was teaching Israelis how to edit Wikipedia. And there is military connections in there, of course, because he, I think he ended up being the Secretary of Defense. I wish we knew, I know we were going to talk about this, or I, w- I would have refreshed my memory on some of these I facts. I know, but sorry. Basically, like, yeah, Naftali Bennett is there on Israeli TV talking up how great it is that we're going to make Wikipedia, quote unquote, balanced and Zionist in nature. Mm. No, that phrase, I don't know, sends up a lot of red flags to me, but yeah. uh, you've got like rows and columns of people editing Wikipedia all pushing it in a certain ideological direction and getting it into the schools. One of the members of the board of directors, her whole thing is getting Wikipedia into the schools, which is another, I should have mentioned that when you asked me about what the sinister aspects of it are, because that's a really big one. That's one that's sort of metastasized during the pandemic. The United Nations is now pushing that. But Integrity Initiative, before I go too far on the schooling thing, was a UK sort of information warfare operation in which they were trying to push back against quote-unquote Russian information operations and like the Syrian war narrative. And so they would have basically intelligence operatives pretending to be journalists and pretending to be other sort of more above board figures. And it came out that this was not completely above board. And I don't really remember the details. All good. All good. It's a scandal from a while back. I just, it, I hadn't, re- I hadn't heard of it. I didn't think, or I glossed over it. So I figured I would ask, but that's a pretty good summary. I mean, it is a tangled web and it's often the same spiders in it. You just got to find out which one's connected to which in a weird connect the dots. Yeah. And another thing, if you look up the integrity initiative, if you try to Google that, you will find nothing. Uh. <laughs> Even if you try to look it up on DuckDuckGo, you'll find nothing. Mm. Go to Yandex, you'll find plenty. Wikispooks has a, Wikispooks is the sort of exposed, it's the uh, mirror image of Wikipedia almost because it's like, a, it's got all the information Wikipedia doesn't have. But yes, yes. In the same format. So I also really liked this line from your latest Substack article where you said, the censorship we see on social media or 
read stories about is only the tip of a well-funded iceberg powered by our money stolen by the financial cartels to create the illusion that humanity embraces their totalitarianism. Dissent must not be just suppressed, but disappeared. Well, I think that is so well said. It's actually really easy to slip into feelings of isolation, like nobody else gets this or sees this stuff. But, you know, I do see other folks getting giddy on the other side over this mass awakening that I also don't really see. And it's hard to get a true sense of if a tide is really turning or not. What's your read on how a lot of this perception management is really going? Like, is there a mass awakening or are the sheep just as asleep as they always have been? I can't seem to really nail down exactly where that needle on the meter should be because of all this manipulation. Yeah, it's very difficult to tell. And of course, that's by design. I mean, they make these fake polls where, especially in New Zealand is one of the worst with this because they've got Jacinda Ardern was always up there saying, we're going to be your sole source of truth. Great, great. Yeah, we really trust you. But they would have these like polls saying that 90% of people love lockdown and think it's really great. And of course, you can't actually go out and ask people because if they love lockdown, they're going to be at home lockdown. So <laughs> like, can't really get a barometer there. And it, yeah, that, that was a, a lot of it, especially during the lockdown, during the early part of the pandemic was you couldn't actually go out and compare notes with your neighbor. And they tried to sort of instill this distrust so that we don't ask our neighbors or just random people that we happen to meet political questions, because it's now considered we're so polarized as a nation that if you ask anybody a political question, they're going to be violent at you and stuff. And it's like, well, that's usually not the case. I mean, a lot of times you strike up a conversation with someone in line about how ludicrous it is that you have to stand six feet apart. And you probably find at least some degree of sympathy, even if they aren't like openly espousing these views on their own. A lot of times I think that while there might be not on the surface awakening, I think people sort of at least subconsciously understand that this is a shrill shrieking fraud and that it can't continue in this way. But I think that one of the big problems with the mass vaccination is that they've sort of like tied up people's fear of their own mortality in this whole mess. So like if people admit that reality exists and that these spike proteins, manufacturing facilities that their cells have been turned into are not ideal situations, physically, mentally, anything like that, they then have to admit that maybe their days on earth are numbered. And nobody wants to admit that because as a species, we are completely terrified of our own mortality. So it was a really a number that they did on people's psyches with that one. But they definitely want to keep us isolated and believing that we are the conspiracy theorists who are just like off the wall, like nobody could ever possibly believe this stuff. So that's why they have all of these bots on Twitter. And of course, Elon Musk says he's going to go get the bots and he only just introduces his own bots. I mean, I was just in some thread where there was like videos of people posting their vaccine side effects and all of these people responding so with so much hostility to these people just posting like images of themselves shaking. It's like, oh, is this, how can you possibly think that this is real? Oh, it's like, why are you getting so angry? Like, what is it to you, what these people are doing? Yeah. Like, it's completely false. And if these are real people, I mean, I kind of feel sorry for them, but I just don't think that the majority of people are like that. If you are having a good time, if you are enjoying life or just having a harmonious existence with your universe, you aren't on social media complaining about it. So there's also like a sort of sampling error there. In that we don't see a lot of like people who are maybe they're not only awake, but they've found like a way to carve out their own niche in this psychotic world. And so they're not going to be on social media talking about it because <laughs> they're going to attract unwanted attention. And there's so many people out there that they, they see you having a good time. They just want to mess it up. So mm -hmm. it's hard to tell. But 
I think that there is some awakening going on. It's just that it's slow and it's cut through with this fear of mortality, which is a difficult thing to get around. Well said. Yes, the mortality thing is definitely an element. And it is tough because they try to make it seem like it's non-existent. And then people on the other side maybe overemphasize where it's at because of that. And you're kind of stuck in the middle like, hmm, I don't know. I don't see a lot of it in my personal life. Maybe people have their own private thoughts that they're not going to share with me because they know where I am already. But it's just a difficult thing we got to deal with. And I wanted to switch gears a little bit to uh, something you said about World War III and the Ukraine issue. And it's hard not to start every question with a quote from you because I just want people to hear the way you put things. But let's talk about your perspective on the Ukraine thing and this prospect of World War III. You refer to Ukraine as Big Israel, which I want to hear more about. But you write, Big Israel will have all of NATO's weapons at its beck and call as the head of president's office for Ukraine. Andrea Yermak and former NATO Security General Anders Fogh Rasmussen made clear earlier this month when they unveiled the Kiev Security Compact, a chutzpah-soaked document that explicitly obliges the U.S. and its European allies to not only support unlimited military and financial aid to Ukraine for as long as it exists, but to defend whatever Kiev calls its borders in case of aggression putting them in direct conflict with Russia on a legally and politically binding one-way journey to World War III. I mean, goddamn. You know, I've been saying since the beginning, chill out with the Ukrainian flag. Stop being led around by the TV. There are so many atrocities in the world, but nobody cares until they're told to care. But there is this perception that even anti-war folks have that, well, Russia was first to act. They invaded. But... It's not really that simple. Help us understand a truer context for this situation, the real impact of this Kiev security compact, and what the next stages of this big mess look like to you. Well, I mean, Russia, of course, wasn't first to act. This is something that the U.S. and NATO have been doing since the early 90s when they promised that they weren't going to push NATO's boundaries any further east and then have just proceeded to break that promise repeatedly for the last, like, 30 years. So there's that. And then... The Ukraine itself situation was that we overthrew or helped overthrow, basically overthrew their democratic elected government in 2014, installing these neo-Nazi psychopaths. And because, you know, they're they're easy to control and CIA has been fostering that sort of current, that sort of far right, like weird fetishization of like the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, Stepan Bandera. You'll see his face in any sort of gathering of Ukrainian nationalists. but. The CIA has been fostering this since the end of World War II. And so, like, we have this faction, this sort of fifth column in, in uh, Ukraine, and we sort of put those people in power. And ever since then, they've been bombing the eastern Ukraine, these breakaway republics, the Donetsk and Lugansk, because they broke away because they saw these psychopaths take power and basically declare war on the Russian-speaking population, which is half of Ukraine. And they said, oh, you know, we don't really want to be a part of this. So they're like, you know, we're, we're going to bounce. And Poroshenko, which who was the president at that time, said, no, you're not going to bounce, and I'm going to bomb you. And they proceeded to kill over 10,000 civilians. I think the number is like 14,000. It was 14,000 before the invasion in February. And so claiming that Russia started this is a complete historically amnesiac way of looking at things, which unfortunately is kind of how the U.S. tends to do things. But And then there was this, what was supposed to be a treaty, and that was supposed to be a ceasefire. 
and the Minsk process in 2015. And that was, Poroshenko has since admitted that that was just to buy them time to get more weapons and to have NATO train uh, their people. So ever since then, it's been the U.S. bulking up their army, Europe bulking up their army. And uh, so this idea that Russia struck first is not even remotely true. And it's very unfortunate that Americans have been so duped into supporting this regime because, I mean, even Zelensky was was elected on a platform of peace to make peace with Russia and stop this ridiculous bombarding of their fellow Ukrainians. I mean, well, just while there is a certain faction that is rapidly anti-Russian, they aren't all like that. And I think I would imagine that, especially at this point, the vast majority of Ukrainians just want this war to be over. and. Nobody cares what they think. The U.S. is going to fight to the last Ukrainian. I think Lindsey Graham actually said that out loud, which is like ridiculous. That guy is a cartoon character. But um, of course, Zelensky supposedly wanted peace. And then supposedly the Azov battalion took him aside and said, well, if you try to do that, we'll kill you. And I don't think that even had to happen. I think that because Zelensky and the Azov battalion are both owned by the same guy, a Jewish billionaire named Igor Kolomoski, which is you might think, hmm, why is the Jewish billionaire funding a neo-Nazi militia? Well. I mean, I could explain that, but it would take a little while. And it, basically, it, it's a lot easier to present yourself as the persecuted minority when you have these big, scary theatrical neo-Nazis running around everywhere. And so you know, they get they get it coming and going. But um, <laughs> yeah. And so this this idea that, oh, the Nazi thing is totally Russian propaganda. It's like, well, if you look at any Western media coverage of Ukraine before February 2022, and you'll see Ukraine has a Nazi problem. Gee, what's with all these swastikas? And just look at the guys covered in like swastika tattoos. I think I, I included a picture in one of my recent articles. It was like, uh, you really, is, is, did I get you a swastika tattoo to go with your swastika tattoo and your other swastika tattoos? <laughs> I saw that, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But in terms of like where this is going, the US refuses to let it go. And whenever there's like a sign that the Ukrainians might be willing to negotiate, Russia has been willing to negotiate since day one. They've been trying to head this war off, like since Lavrov was constantly returning uh, communications to NATO saying, these are our terms. Just don't have Ukraine join NATO. Let the borders stay where they are, which is let the republics remain independent and let Crimea remain a part of Russia. Crimea voted to become part of Russia. It was not invaded. It was not occupied. It is Russian and it is Russian now. So that's like ridiculous that that is even a thing. But yeah, Ukraine is insisting it's going to take back Crimea. Well, the Crimeans don't want you, dude. <laughs> yeah, it is tough because... We are in a continuum of events and everybody wants to start the story where it's convenient for them. And, you know, you lose a lot of context for what came before that. And you have to throw in a layer of propaganda and incentives from various states. And it's tough to unpack. It, it really is. And it's crazy to me that everyone knows we're broke here. Everyone sees businesses closing or doing these mass layoffs. Most of the major cities I've been to lately have a real bad homelessness crisis like I've never seen before. But nobody really has anything to say about each new blank check written to Ukraine. Will anyone ever say enough is enough? Most people just seem checked out. And then I had a listener call in on this voicemail bonus show I do, and he was living in Sweden. And he said his energy bill went from 700 pounds to a backbreaking 3,000 pounds a month. Oh, my God. It's insanity out there, Helen. And of course, it's that way because of the energy situation with Russia. Yeah, this is a self-inflicted wound. I mean, Europe basically said, we are not going to take any more Russian energy. So Europe was getting a lot of its energy from Russia. They don't uh, produce a lot of energy over there. So they get the gas and the oil from Russia. And 
the U.S., of course, has tried to step in and say, oh, we'll sell you our liquefied natural gas, which, of course, costs a lot more and it requires all this infrastructure to transport. But Europe doesn't have the infrastructure to receive the amount that it is no longer receiving from Russia. So the costs have just ballooned. And of course, there's not like they're making any more money to sort of meet that. And so you have like UK, they were just asked to um, cut back their usage for an hour and then they could get like 12 pounds. And like that's like putting a Band-Aid on a cannonball wound. And <laughs> it's completely, they are not equipped to deal with this, again, self-inflicted wound. They, they insist on, oh yes, we're saving democracy. And there were all these, again, fake polls polling the Europeans saying, oh, yes, Europeans are totally willing to sacrifice a few dollars here and there for or a few euros here and there for the sake of our fellow democracy in Ukraine. Well, for one thing, there's no democracy in Ukraine. Zelensky has banned all opposition parties, all opposition media. They just passed, I think, another law that gives them control of all media. They've banned some religions now. If you worship the wrong way, you can get thrown in jail. It's really out of control over there. And they're, they're drafting, like, supposedly they're drafting, like, 14-year-olds because they're running out of cannon fodder. It's not a good place to be. There's nothing remotely democratic about it. And unfortunately, the way that I see it, at least, is that it's sort of being used as a test laboratory for stuff they want to be able to get away with here and get away with, with other Western democracies. I called Zelensky the West's bad idea man because he's basically being used as a guinea pig. Well, the Ukrainians are being used as guinea pigs for all of these really terrible, like, totalitarian situations. And this state within a smartphone, the DIA app, that is basically the World Economic Forum's wet dream, that's being rolled out in Estonia now. So uh, as, as goes Ukraine, as goes Estonia, so goes the rest of Europe, and then eventually goes, so goes America. And that's really scary once it gets that way, because then your social credit score goes down. I mean, everyone's seen the Black Mirror episode. You know what I'm talking about. It's mm -hmm. um, you can't do anything. You cannot. There will be no cash. There will be no even the idea of barter will be sort of excised from human consciousness and anybody caught doing it will be made an example of, there's going to be a lot of examples made, a lot of like bodies hanging in public squares, I'm afraid. Scary, but you're probably not wrong. And when gas prices were high, they were calling it Putin's price hike, which was kind of insane. It's like, well, stop fucking with the equilibrium we had. It kind of seems like I'm not a Trump guy, but it seems like the globalists and military industrial complex are like a rabid dog on a leash. And he was like kind of holding it back. And then as soon as Biden got in office, it's like, release the hounds. Like, we're just going for every agenda we ever thought about at the same time. Yep. And it's it's kind of messed up. I know I, I know it's a little more nuanced than that, but that's just kind of how it feels. And sometimes it is really hard to frame up the rest of the world accurately from inside the American bubble. I try not to get sucked into good guys versus bad guys. There's clearly more going on than that. But you write for RT, and I have liked a lot of RT content. I used to follow Abby Martin's Breaking the Set and Lee Camp's Redacted Tonight. I understand that if you want to criticize the American empire and the globalists, you've got to find a platform outside of the system to do that. But we hear a lot about Russian gangsterism. You know, we might see an American journalist who's critical of the state, banned online, but you might see a Russian journalist critical of the state thrown off a building. I guess I just want a better understanding of the Russian state philosophy around media and how to square that with RT plainly stating its state-affiliated media using the tagline, freedom over censorship, truth over narrative. We all know Fox News uses fair and balanced, so what's in a slogan? But all state-sponsored everything has some sort of agenda, doesn't it? All media has agenda. 
this idea that state-sponsored media is somehow unique in that it has an agenda or it has a bias. I mean, what do you think that brought to you by Pfizer in every single U.S. media organization in the last three years is supposed to mean? I mean, this idea that RT is the only one who's biased, it's ludicrous. And all, all of these people who, who claim to be unbiased, those are the ones you should look at because you know that they're lying in addition to their bias. Everybody comes to the table with some kind of bias. But um, in terms of Russia is not a place where journalists are routinely thrown off buildings. Or, I mean, I'm sure there are some cases of this, but there are some cases of this in the U.S. Yes. Ever heard of Gary Webb, the guy who supposedly shot himself twice in the head after exposing the CIA's role in trafficking cocaine from Nicaragua? So this is not a thing that is unique to Russia. But of course, if you control media, you can shine a spotlight wherever you like. And True. while I wouldn't expect that, I wouldn't go to RT if I was looking for like incisive criticism of the Russian government. But in the same token, I wouldn't go to any U.S. media organization if I was looking for incisive criticism of the Biden administration. So it's like, you know what you're getting with a state-owned media organization. And hopefully you have one that's run relatively well and gives their authors some freedom to follow particular stories that are interesting. And RT, I think, has a lot of that. There's, I mean, it's unfortunate that maybe the, their, the corona thing, they, they have their own set up to prop up. And so maybe people can't necessarily follow that string down whatever rabbit hole they want. But it's like, you can do that on your own site, or you can do that on other outlets. And I think that they don't control what their journalists do outside their website. So it's like, if you work for a US media organization, they have all of these like ridiculous social media policies and stuff. You can't say certain things, because you're supposedly always representing the thing. Now, of course, I'm here as an independent person. I'm not here as an RT representative. So obviously I'm not going to say something really stupid, but like I can rest easy knowing that nobody's breathing down my neck. Yeah. And so I think that this idea that, oh yes, US media organization is the only place where you can be free. It's yeah, free, <laughs> free, really. <laughs> I mean, I've seen enough people get canceled to know that that's not the case, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely just thought because we're talking about a sensitive conflict, it was worth a mention. And I am totally on your page with that answer. And another story that kind of came and went, and I never really had a guest here to talk about, was the quote-unquote revolution in Iran. It's another one of those things that's hard for me to really get a handle on. Are they really locking women out of education and even reading? Well, then a revolution is warranted, and of course the CIA is going to try to light that fire. You referred to it as Persian girls gone wild in the service <laughs> of Western imperialism. Love it. Help us frame that situation up more accurately than it's typically presented. Well, they've been trying to get a color revolution going in Iran for over a decade now. The Brookings Institute came out in 2009 with this paper called What Path to Persia? It basically said, well, we can't just have a direct ground invasion because we'll lose. Their army is too good. It's not going to be like Afghanistan where you get a bunch of like goat herders in the wilderness and so we can't just do that. We can't have some sort of military coup. They're not going to go for that. We can't send in ISIS. The religious the identity is too strong. It's not going to really find any adherence there. So the only way we're going to be able to do this is through civil society. And civil society, of course, is when the U.S. US aid and National Endowment for Democracy, whatever, send their people into your country and start organizing the youth into, you know, fun after school programs. Just don't look too close at it. It's uh, We're just having some fun here having some fun in the service of Western imperialism. So it's been like the same playbook again and again. They just try to gin up these, they'll nibble on some like minor thing. In 2009, it was the election results. They didn't like that. I think it was Ahmadinejad had been reelected. 
And so they claimed that, oh, it was rigged and this and the green movement was what was spawned out of that. The green movement is totally US CIA sponsored nonsense. So that actually has sort of lingered around in the periphery ever since. And they were risen again with this latest one, which it was this woman who was brought in because she didn't have her hair covered. And I mean, I don't know, it's a cultural thing. Maybe, maybe I just don't understand it because I'm not there. But the whole hair covering thing seems a little excessive. But this idea that they're barred from education or something, now you're thinking of Afghanistan. That's the totally different, oh, my very different situation. There. Typical Iranian American, women. get it all mixed up. Yeah, no, that's, they do that on purpose. It's the, the, the idea of they'll probably put a picture of like women under the Taliban and say, yes, oh, women in Iran are so impressed. And yeah, I wouldn't want to have to wear a headscarf all the time, but it's they're a relatively modern society over there. It's not like they have to peer through a hole in a giant carpet over their head. But this latest one was the woman supposedly she died in, in a police station. First, they tried to say she was beaten. And then it wasn't that because the doctor said, well, no, she had a brain aneurysm or something like that. But it was a natural cause thing. It was something that she had had for a while and that had flared up again. And then she died. But they tried to make it that it was a responsibility of the police beating her or otherwise treating her unfairly. And you could tell when you look at all these protests, I was trying to find pictures to illustrate the articles that I was writing about it. And I couldn't find any actual photos of like a peaceful protest in Iran. There was some riots. There was plenty of riots. And they, they did. They sent in the their Kurdish separatists. That's because they always have Kurdish separatists hanging out. That's one of the big goals of the U.S. and the Middle East is to create this greater Kurdistan so as to facilitate the creation of greater Israel. But that's another story. So they sent in their Kurds and this, this woman was Kurdish. So they had their cause there. In Iran, it was the protests were basically riots and the police came in and put them down, as you do when you have a riot going on. But of course, in every European city, in every American city, they had these women come out with, with scissors. I'm sorry, like you don't go just have scissors when you go out. Like You have scissors because you know you're going to do something. The idea that this woman cut her hair spontaneously in the middle and, and tears off her headscarf and cuts her hair with these big giant scissors. I'm sorry, I don't like when I go out into the street to go do my shopping or whatever, I don't carry big ass scissors around with me <laughs> on the occasion that I might want to like stage a protest against my oppressive Islamic regime and cut my hair in the middle of public square. So that's nonsense. The whole protest, there's a reason they call them color revolutions. I mean, this one didn't have a color associated with it, but it's always like these very like sort of lowest common denominator, like things that anyone can understand, like brute force, like women, life, freedom, or whatever it was, is their slogan. It's like, what does that even mean? Like nobody's against women, life, or freedom. Like that's not even a thing. <laughs> so they assume that people have a low imagination or a low intellect and that they can just be, oh, well, things must be so bad in, in Iran that they, they're against women, life, and freedom that over there. So we have to support in, in solidarity. And so it's like when you have more people demonstrating in the streets of Berlin, for your Iranian cause, that maybe it's like the women of Iran are not running around saying, oh, yes, please save us, CIA. It's very telling that the woman who claims to be in charge is a FBI funded. She's taking money from a couple of U.S. agencies, actually, but I know FBI was one of them. Masi Al Al Alinejad, I think is her name. Yeah, she was honored at the World Economic Forum, actually. Oh, And so course. it's like, yeah, really, is this the savior of the Iranian woman? Really? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, she'll have as great a time as all the other women in the countries that the U.S. have saved and that are now like under ISIS. So, yeah, Libya, the women of Libya went from having the highest standard of living in the entire African continent to now they're being sold as slaves. OK, great. Yeah. Thank you, NATO. <laughs> yeah, it's just so hard to know exactly where the truth is, because I also see these articles with images that I'm sure 
our propaganda too, that show like 1990s or 1980s Iran before the current regime. And the the women look like they're at a Brady Bunch conference, the way they're <laughs> dressed and the way their hair is. And it just seems like a oppressive, extremely religious regime got in power and kind of changed the culture. And I don't know, maybe people do have a real problem with it and they can't stand up. But I guess the point is that like the CIA's interests are not in freeing anybody. It's in destabilizing an area they've been trying to get at for a long time and never let a good crisis go to waste, you know, that kind of thing. But it's it's really hard to know where the true incentives are and, and what people even want because we just don't have access directly to them. There's all these layers of propaganda in between us and them. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why they've deplatformed all these Iranian accounts from like Twitter and Facebook and stuff. They don't want us comparing notes. So that instead they have these like fake ones from the... MEK, which is this Iranian exile cult that is basically uh, sponsors a lot of far right politicians in the US. John Bolton is one of their favorite speakers. But um, yeah, in terms of whether a hardline regime took over, yes, hardline regime did take over. And there are some social strains there. But the thing is that it's not like they didn't listen. They did actually disband these morality police in response to the actual protests that did go on there. Because it wasn't like that it was completely synthetic. Obviously, when you have a color revolution, what you do is you take existing social unrest and you fan the flames of that and right. redirect it into a regime change thing. Right, right. So that's what they were trying to do here. And that's what they've, that's the whole, if you read it, the Brookings Institute paper, it, it makes a lot of sense because all of a sudden the, the events of the last, I think they tried it in 2017, they tried it in 2019, 2009, and then now in 2022, they tried it. So it's like, eventually they're going to have to come up with something new, but it's not wholly fake, but it's not wholly real either. And you can usually tell when you see the signs. If you're in a, in a Muslim country and the signs are all in English, it's like, um, guys, could you like, <laughs> you know, I don't know, try to be a little more realistic here. Right, right. Who is this for? It seems like it's for the American audience watching it on CNN. Yep. And it reminds me a lot of Wag the Dog when they're trying to find highly emotional scenes to film. And they're like, we got to get the right kitten. And they go through this whole thing of like casting for kittens that could be in the rubble yeah. of the bombed building. Yeah, I use, I use that clip in my articles all the time. <laughs> yes, that's what that haircutting thing reminds me of. And another important topic you mentioned earlier is education and the way it's being crafted. It's always been propaganda and narrative control, especially like in the history department. But the dial seems to be turned up a lot recently. Here's a quote of yours regarding education, Iran, Israel and Palestine that I wanted to have you elaborate on. You write. Just as an increasingly mainstream school of thought in Israel holds that Palestine never existed, and this less than a century after stealing its land, destroying its villages, and rendering hundreds of thousands of Palestinians homeless and stateless, Israel firsters efforts to pin responsibility for 9-11 on Iran are ongoing, and who knows how many other historical atrocities are being pinned on the Persians as we speak. If Tehran falls to one of these color revolutions, we will within a decade be teaching this absurdity in elementary schools. I mean, wow. I didn't know they were going to that extreme to erase Palestine from the history books and even pin 9-11 on Iran. When you really think about the implications of that, it's pretty wild. And clearly official history has to be full of these sorts of fabrications, but to see it in real time is pretty eye-opening, you know? 
Yeah, it's like they know that most parents don't sit there and read their kids' textbooks. So, yeah. like, if they can put in a low bid to supply textbooks, every school district is strapped for cash because they have these bloated administrative superstructures that take up all the money. So, it's like when you need new textbooks and somebody comes in and says, oh, yeah, I can supply it for half the price. Just don't read that part about the Middle East because it's totally fictional. This is not speculation. There was some county in Virginia, they actually sued and managed to stop. It was some Israeli group that had interceded and created this whole like false thing into the curriculum. And of course, the ADL is notorious for this. They're quote unquote anti-racist curriculums that have a few creative interpretations of reality, which is understandable when you when you know that the ADL was founded to defend a rapist and murderer who he owned a factory and he killed this 13-year-old worker and raped her and then tried to blame it on a black watchman. And the B'nai B'rith organization managed to get him away with not having the death penalty. The villagers ended up stringing him up by his balls, basically. And the ADL has ever since then worked tirelessly to clear his name, even though he was guilty as sin. And there's no evidence that can outweigh the amount of evidence in favor of that. So it's like when you look at what they were founded to do, all of a sudden what they're doing now makes a lot more sense. Mm. Yeah, man, you really have a, a knack for parsing through this stuff. And I know we got to wrap this up. Before we do, though, on the hope front, you know so much about where so many of these different agendas connect and come together. How do you advise people like in this audience who see the writing on the wall in a lot of ways? How do you advise them to contribute to making this harder for the cabal? What are the silent daily acts of peaceful noncompliance we can actually do to gum up the works, even as a minority that sees the general shape of these plans and desperately doesn't want them to succeed? Well, I mean, you can opt out of the system wherever possible. You can yeah, gum up the works. If you have one of these like snitching systems, submit fake reports, create fake personalities, do it that way. I mean, if you work some way in the system, find ways to slow things down or interrupt things or divert things. I mean, everybody could do like their own little thing. Or if like, you know, you're being surveilled, then put a bunch of red herrings in your text and does send people down obvious dead ends. And I mean, parallel structures are also very important. I think as we're seeing like doctors losing their licenses over wrong think and stuff, we need to find ways. You had somebody on your show actually a couple of months ago talking about PMAs. And yeah. like, I think that that's a, a route that people should explore. I personally don't know enough about it myself, but what I have learned, I, I think it's very intriguing. And the, the idea that we can have these membership organizations that are not subject to these increasingly draconian laws and just have some privacy where we can actually have a functional society again, because we're not having that right now. And the more that the medical professionals are driven out of the official industry and their credentials are no longer meaningful, we need to have our own like set of trusted credentials and a way to find other people who are not snitches, who are not pod people and construct our own society. Because the way that they're doing this with the pandemic world is that it's a global 9-11. There's not going to be anywhere to go move that you can go and be safe from this police state. So they've made sure that every country is going along with it. The World Health Organization's Global Pandemic Treaty, which I'm sure that your listeners are familiar with by now, but it's going to basically make it so that even if a country decides it doesn't want to go along with the lockdowns or go along with the vaccine mandates, they're not going to be able to because they will be legally required to do so. And so we have to push back now because there is not going to be another chance. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just basically, I mean, parallel structures are key. I think that that's yeah. the most important thing right now that we can do, whether it's like a barter system or I don't want to say go with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a trap. 
if you're going to hmm. use digital currency, go with Monero because at least it's private. Otherwise, Bitcoin, like every transaction you ever make is public on the blockchain for everybody to look at. And that's not really a good idea, but yeah, use cash. <laughs> right. Cash for sure. Fair points and good advice. Yeah. Parallel structures indeed. And guerrilla tactics. There are their people everywhere, but also our people are everywhere. We all have jobs too. So, uh, you know, do what you can where you can, I guess. But man, I really, really enjoyed this. I hope you get a grip of new Substack subscribers. We are so lucky, as I said, that that platform came along to support all these journalists being pushed out of the circle. Kind of crazy how much knowledge really hinges on just a small handful of remaining platforms, but use it while we got it, I guess. But thanks again for what you do. Give them your links one more time before we call it in. All right. You can see my, my website, Substack. Um, Helenofdestroy.substack.com is my current stuff. Uh, you can see some of my archive at Velocirapture, V-E-L-O-C-I-R-A-P-T-U-R-E.substack.com. I used to have a website that is no longer, unfortunately, because of a certain foreign intelligence service, but mm. not going to go into that. And uh, my Twitter and Telegram are Velocirapture, same spelling, 23. And my YouTube and BitChute are just Helen of Destroy. And so that's basically all the links and... I have alternate social media platforms, but I don't really use them. So there's not really any point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Substack is great. I think that it's really a godsend for people who are like one man shows here like me and who don't have web support people to constantly be putting their website back up when the people take it down. And it's such a relief. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, right on. You know a lot about a lot. Thanks for sharing all this with us. Kudos to you for sticking it to the man. You are a talented wordsmith. Keep fighting the good fight and take care. You too. Thanks for having me. And boom goes the dynamite. Yes, people. Helen of Destroy. I really liked this one. After January's shows, which I tried to keep as varied as ever, Chris Knowles kicking it off with a banger. And the education show with Carrie McDonald was a high level one, too. And not that the other ones weren't, but I could see a person coming off of the Mount Shasta crew show and one about floating and think, Geez, with so much going on in the world, when is this guy going to get back to covering all these conspiracies on his conspiracy show? And if you were thinking that, see, I don't even need to be told. I already know. And that win is now. But I'm not trying to hit you over the head with the same subjects show after show. So we covered a few outside the box things, and I thought, yes, it's probably time to revisit the various news items out there with a well-rounded journalist. And I would say we accomplished it. I really didn't hear anything that I disagree with across the board of all the major topics we got into. Manufactured consensus, this stupid chat GPT thing, which we will be hearing about forever, by the way. I tune out so fast over AI commentary. There's just so much of it out there. Though there are still conspiracy and esoteric angles that I find interesting. But I'm talking about the plain, vanilla, how is this going to change society kind of stuff. Or the giddy kids on Christmas morning announcing, well, I asked GTP XYZ and this is what it said. I mean, come on. It's literally just a wordy Google. You say that and then people say, well, yeah, but it's going to get better. And I think, is it? Did Google ever really get better? I remember it launching pretty much like it is now, but with a layer of ads and censorship added. And with ChatGTP, 
you got the censorship and bias from day one. So I guess that's something. But we also talked about the academic inquisition purity test that's going on right now. Another thing that gets a little annoying when I hear the same five academics going on the biggest podcast in the world and talking about how nobody lets them talk. But the way Helen breaks it down, I think, is a lot closer to the raw truth and danger involved in going down this road, and it should be held under the microscope. And then also the geopolitical topics, Russia, Ukraine, Iran, important stuff to touch on, and Helen is pretty knowledgeable across the board. We obviously recorded this interview before the Chinese satellite story that's dominated conspiracy culture the last couple of days, and I guess they shot it down, but just another one of those weird little stories that doesn't add up. Was it a distraction from all the Pfizer stuff and the Project Veritas thing? Was it just more fear and paranoia? Probably a bit of both, but this idea that it got all the way to Montana without being detected doesn't really add up. And I'm not even sure what incentive China would have to do such a thing. So to me, it just seems like more military-industrial complex fuckery, some sort of soft, fear-generating false flag. For so many different things now, more than in previous decades, it just feels like the American people are the rats in the maze being tested on for all these various little things. How will they react to this? Let's throw another thing at them. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. It's just funny because the government and the news media tells us about this Chinese balloon and everyone tries to start puzzle solving, but few people that I saw were actually stopping to ask, well, do we trust that this is a Chinese spy balloon? I mean, why not try to start our detective work before the headline and not after? Oh, well, just a weird thing that happened or didn't happen. I don't know what's real anymore. But if you liked the first hour, you know every episode has a second hour. And in today's, we talked about some pretty thorny things like her recent post, Are You Enjoying Your Membership in the Mass Shooting of the Day Club? We got Helen's take on Ron DeSantis. We talked about the Spiral of Silence, the Order of Nine Angels, and the Temple of Blood. Helen's thoughts on if they really could stage an alien invasion, her own high strangeness experience. This talk about quarantation camps in New York City. Yeah, now, even still, they're talking about that. We got into the carbon credit infrastructure rollout that's happening in real time, slave mining in Africa, and the fight between East and West on that battleground. The impossible plan for electric vehicles. Elon, vaccine injury, WeChat, and Twitter. Helen's Twitter files analysis, pre-crime, and the dangerous tiptoe towards it, and Deep and Harpa, which I didn't know much about. I was happy to hear her break them down as well. A real Pandora's box of parapolitical goodness. Start your membership off with a seven-day free trial at thehiresidechats.com and treat yourself to everything everywhere all at once. But follow Helen. Her Substack is great. Her Telegram is also great. And I just saw her announcement that she got her website back, HelenOfDestroy.com. But let her know you appreciate her analysis if you do. In higher side news, we got the THC outline auction underway. Still just the first batch, about 100 outlines up there, and pretty easy to still snag one for like 40 bucks. There are a couple that are near 
for over a hundred bucks, which is kind of surprising. And in first place is a Gordon White show going for over two hundred bucks. I just really, really appreciate that. And it's good news that a Gordon White show is out in front because what do I have the most of? Gordon White shows. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but five more days on the first batch, and I hope to have a second round up before I leave for Shasta, at least. I was going to fly, but now I'm driving with the wife and kid. We are leaving this coast soon. So it's one last chance to go through Redwood Country and show our daughter the Pacific Northwest and give her a lesson in what cold really is. I know she's only one, but she is just too soft, if you ask me. And what else? What else? I guess we'll go through the meetup calendar and then call it a day. If you were ever curious to find other THC fans that might live around you, that is what the meetup calendar is for at HiresideMeetups.com. And as for upcoming events, it looks like the next one on the list is the Higher Suit Meetup in Wellington, New Zealand. So if you're in Wellington, New Zealand, Gordon set up an event for THC and RuneSuit fans. And I have seen some various comments on different platforms from people saying, yay, I'm in New Zealand, I'm definitely going. But then nobody is really using the RSVP system, which is frustrating when someone is trying to gauge interest in an event and get a head count. So please, if you plan to go, let them know. And that really goes for all events on the calendar. I've actually been hearing people say, well, I made an event, nobody RSVP'd, so I almost didn't even go myself. But I did go, and then there was like a dozen people there. On the joint session, we had a guy call in who said the host didn't show for the event that he attended, but he still met some cool people. Well, that's bad form on both sides. If you make an event, honor it, show up, and if you hear about one you plan to go to, it's not hard to click RSVP and let them know that they won't be sitting there alone. I know they shut us all down for a year, and our social skills might be a little rusty, but let's not forget basic human etiquette, okay? So also on February 11th, there is one in Montpelier, Vermont. On February 15th, the Seattle THC Inquisition coming back around again. February 17th, Sinspiracy Monthly number 2 in Blue Ash, Ohio. And then the rest are in March. So not a ton for February, but we do have a handful. And it seems like several of them are recurring. So it's good to know that people put themselves out there. They met some new people that they like, and they want to get together again. That's a beautiful thing. So at least in some cities across this great land, the THC meetups are working. But with that, let's say that's the show. Big thanks to Helen and to you, dear listeners. I've done my part. Your move, sorcerers of digital censorship, geopolitical puppeteers, and operators of the never-ending ops. Your fucking you know the plan has always been to hack your brain MK Ultra's trying to drive you insane They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot and baby, if I seem withdrawn, let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked. Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone. It's 
You gotta keep the curtains strong Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan It's what the world's become Out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. 